Tēnā koutou, te whanau o Aotearoa Unitarians. Tēnā koutou, ngā manuhiri. Nau mai, haere mai. Haere mai ki te kaupapa o te rā. Haere mai ki o tātou whanau. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. Tēnā tātou katoa. Welcome everybody to this service. Hello to the people in the building and hello to the people who are far. Um, you're, all, you're all welcome here. For my opening words, I have chosen a quote, which I've heard many times, and probably you will have too, many of you, by Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And now, is there somebody in church who would like to light the chalice there? I have a candle here that I will light. If you have a candle at home, please light it. Thank you, Lynn. Um, the chalice lighting... I did this before. Is, um, the words for the chalice lighting are by Ralph Waldo Emerson. There's also a version of this from Lao Tzu and one from Buddha and many other versions, but this is a Unitarian version. Sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an act and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. Burning down the house, not that version admittedly, but I found that one and I liked it. Burning down the house, um, the song, was part of the soundtrack of my adolescence. The song came out two years after the 1981 Springbok tour of New Zealand that had united a nationwide protest movement from across the political and socio-economic spectrum, where tens of thousands of us had marched together periodically in the year leading up to the tour. And twice a week from the 19th of July, my mother's birthday and the day our family went to the airport at dawn, to protest the Springbok's arrival, to the 12th of September, the fourth anniversary of Steve Biko's death from severe beating in custody, and the date of the final test match of the tour. The second match against the Waikato provincial team on the 25th of July was called off after protesters invaded the pitch. Apart from that one match, the tour went ahead. The movement didn't achieve its aim of stopping the tour. The introduction to the subject of the tour on the New Zealand History website has the subheading, A Country Divided. It has been described as close to being civil war. But over the next 40 years, many things happened. Nelson Mandela went from being an imprisoned terrorist on Robben Island in South Africa to being the joint winner with F.W. de Klerk of the 1993 Nobel Peace Prize for their work ending apartheid. Mandela became president of post-apartheid South Africa in 1994. And in 1995, he visited New Zealand. Protest leader John Minto remembers the visit. One of the things he said was that when he was in prison in 1981 and they heard that the game had been stopped by protest, all the prisoners rattled their doors throughout the jail 
And he said, it was like the sun came out. In 2018, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern addressed the Nelson Mandela Peace Summit at the United Nations in New York and spoke about New Zealand having stood in solidarity with the black South African population during the 1981 tour. In 2019, there was a Nelson Mandela exhibition at Eden Park, the rugby heart of New Zealand, where representatives of the rugby union spoke proudly about New Zealand's stand against apartheid in 1981. In 2022, it is common for those of us who protested to speak fondly of our times standing up for the end of a racist regime in South Africa. It is much less common to find people who were pro-tour in 1981 fondly reminiscing about the stand they took to keep politics out of sport. The country divided is slowly rewriting our history. Our story now is much more often that we supported the end of apartheid. We marched peacefully in the streets. Nelson Mandela thanked us. We talk much less about the radical elements that undertook a deliberate program of civil disobedience in order to get arrested and clog the court system and put pressure on the government to call the tour off. For me personally, I loved the protest movement. I felt a sense of righteous rage at the South African regime. I was thrilled to march alongside trade unionists and Maori radicals and teenage punks and middle-class teachers and public servants and university students. The coolest to me were the most radical. The protest movement took inspiration from the non-violent direct action of Mahatma Gandhi. Like Gandhi, we were after radical change. I believe then, as I believe now, that change at the root of our social arrangements is necessary in order to achieve justice. The word radical comes from the word for root. Then, burning down the house was mightily appealing to me. But actually it was easy. Being radical had an element of ego and wanting to be among the cool and having a tale to tell. South Africa was far away. The injustice was totally unambiguous. Solidarity was important, but it didn't cause me much personal discomfort. The song Burning Down the House came out two years after that tour and one year after the fifth form dean of my school, we'll call him Mr Smith because that was his name, spoke to all of us in fourth form when we had to choose our subjects for the following year our school certificate year and the time when many people set the course for their future working lives. He said to us that if the girls didn't want to take maths, it didn't really matter because we wouldn't be needing it. That was not injustice in faraway South Africa. That was a figure of daily authority in our lives, diminishing the prospects and curtailing the possibilities for about 100 14 and 15 year old girls. And presumably, he did it every year. I was still in favour of burning down the house. I put my hand up and said something. Mr Smith said something patronising and withering in response. I probably told some of the women teachers. But nothing appeared to come out of it. 
Being in favour of burning down the house is not all that useful if you don't have an organising plan and a network of supporters. As it happens, I did two more years of maths and then dropped it. In my final year of high school, I did a full arts course, even though I'd actually been a very good maths student. After I finished my BA, I couldn't get a job and spent several months on the unemployment benefit. I'm not saying Mr Smith limited my life choices, but maybe he did. So how do we achieve justice? Many of you know that two decades after that song came out, I became a union official. We always have an organising plan. In the winter of 2017, in my role as Vice President of the Council of Trade Unions, I attended a protest in solidarity with a group of Indian students who were being threatened with deportation because there was a problem with their visa status. I wasn't closely involved, but the union movement has links with social change activists everywhere. That protest went pretty much unnoticed. In early 2018, the group working to support those Indian students had contacted Chris Sullivan, a Catholic deacon and social justice activist, to see if his church could provide sanctuary for the students. Their deportation was now imminent. The plan was to invoke a centuries-old tradition of churches providing sanctuary in order to give the students their best chance of being saved from deportation. Chris suggested they contact the Unitarian Church. His network through the Living Wage Movement included our Minister Clay. They contacted Clay and the rest is history. We Unitarians are a community that makes decisions together. We didn't have time in the face of imminent deportation to give the required notice in the church constitution for a special general meeting to consider the question from all sides. We didn't have long to wonder if we would be burning down the house or if we should be doing some other form of more gentle action or no action at all. There were members of our church who were uncomfortable about the time pressure there were people who were uncomfortable about the prospect of supporting students who were on the wrong side of the law. If they were due for deportation, couldn't we trust that the authorities had worked all this out for us? But among the things we knew were, the students had paid a lot of money and trusted agents in India to sort their visa status. The agents marketed student visas as a path to permanent residence in New Zealand. The schools the students attended in Auckland made money from our government and from the students themselves. The courses they offered were of low quality. The students were the most vulnerable people in this whole picture. We had leadership from Clay who challenged us all to show our generosity, to form relationships, to understand that the principle of sanctuary was not a principle of judgment, that sanctuary was not given only to those whose innocence could be guaranteed. It was a principle of compassion and hospitality, giving people in trouble some breathing space. For a month, we provided sanctuary to the students in our church every day. At night, some of us were part of a billeting crew who offered their homes to the students for a place to sleep and eat. Sanctuary has no legal status. 
the police or the immigration authorities could have come into the church and taken the students. If they had, they would have faced TV cameras, radio microphones, and a growing community of church members and the people drawn in. They understood the politics of that scenario and they did not enter. In the end, just as the Springbok protest movement did not stop the 1981 tour, we did not save the students from deportation. Although after some years, a few of them did get to return when the slow, grinding legal process established that they should not have been deported. So what did we achieve? We formed relationships with young men and one woman from India whose world had been completely disconnected from our own. We became known as the Sanctuary Church. We formed relationships with a local community who had also supported the students. We ate curry provided by members of the Auckland Sikh community. We spent more time with each other as we spent time in church daily and not just on Sundays. We lived our principles of recognising the inherent worth and dignity of every person and of justice, equity and compassion in human relations. An alternative to burning down the house is to build an alternative house and an alternative community. This can be just as radical. So be it. So um, for my closing words, um, these come from the Pierke Avot. I don't know how to speak Hebrew, so I'm not sure about the pronunciation. Um, the Chapters of Our Fathers, which is a Ch Jewish text. And this quote is a commentary on Micah, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, which can be found in both Jewish and Christian scripture. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obliged to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. And so now, if you would like to um, share the words for extinguishing the chalice, um, if you know them, I think you probably know them in church. We exting. Oh, is there somebody in church who can get up and do the extinguishing? Thanks, Ted. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community or the fire of commitment. These we carry in our hearts until we are together again. Okay. Um, so the conversation starter is, um, have you ever burned down the house? Have you been part of building an alternative? And what change do you want to see and how do you think we can get there? That's your thoughts.